You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. Sometimes disconnecting the thing that you love from work and doing it in a different context and with different people is, I think, really inspiring and can sort of relight that flame that initially was there. Hey, I'm Christina Wallace. And I'm Kate Scott Campbell. And you're listening to The Limit Does Not Exist. A podcast for human Venn diagrams. Coming at you every single Monday. And hosted by us. Today we're talking with Nadia Ortelt, a scientist, media producer, and documentary filmmaker. She studied neuroscience and visual arts at MIT and was a research scientist at Cambridge University, Harvard, and University College London 
before working at BuzzFeed, Vice, and Mashable as a senior producer. Nadia is now a co-founder of Massive, a new science media company with a mission to connect people to science research and the scientists who are pushing the boundaries of human knowledge. As Nadia puts it, she likes to bring art into quantitative spaces. Mm-hmm. We talk about Nadia's journey from research scientist to filmmaker to startup founder and discuss how to combine passion and expertise to make compelling science media. And Nadia also tells us how she was able to translate her research skills in the science lab directly to a studio set, including, let's be specific here. Um, okay, I'm just going to leave it at this. Rat surgery. <laughs> you know, speaking of rat surgery, just kidding, totally unrelated to rat surgery, we also answer a listener question about how to rekindle the love you once had for your work and get firing on all cylinders again. You too can get custom career advice if you'll email us at humanvendiagram.com or tweet us at Admiral Hopper. That's right. So without further ado, let's get to the episode. Let's do it. I see the lab coats joining the fray. Got a pink nose and a long white maze. Not sure what they're giving me, but I hope they have the dosage. Could have sworn I was here before. I see my muddy tracks follow me down the corridor. Better finish for the bell rings or my head will explode. Hey, Christina. Hey, Kate. Hi, Nadia. Hi. Oh, you know what, Christina? I keep forgetting that you're in Miami right now. <laughs> I keep thinking I that... I am indeed. Yeah, I keep thinking that you and Nadia are both in Brooklyn, but you are, are on the beach somewhere in Miami. <laughs> I mean, like, in this moment, I am not on the beach. Yeah. No, I was on the beach earlier today, and I have the spotted sunburns to prove it. It turns out I am <laughs> not gifted at uh, an equal application of sunscreen everywhere. Um, yeah, is, no, I'm down really? in Miami. Um, my company, Bionic, is doing our company offsite um, for a couple of days down here. And so we got all of the business out of the way in the first day. And now um, the next two days are just about uh, hanging out, having fun, and bonding as a team. We have a couple of remote workers. So this is our chance to really kind of build those relationships that make long distance teamwork work, um, which is really exciting. And, you know, just have a little bit of fun. So nice. Well, there's no better way to bond than over my ties, speech side. I've got to say, <laughs> you know, I, I did uh, the coconut with a straw in it for most of today. And Ooh. I got to be honest, it is better than that boxed uh, coconut water that's like $7 a pop at the bodegas. <laughs> I'm a big fan of a good, a, a good packaging. I really do. Especially, you know, just the original coconut. You can't go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> cannot. It cannot. Oh my gosh. Well, Nadia, we're so excited to have you on the show. And today we're going to kick it off with a listener question. We always love to get listener questions. Um, before we do that, though, we want to give a shout out to a Twitter follower who's doing awesome things. Christina, do you want to take it away? Yeah, so Emily Dennett, um, who's tweeted us a couple of times, and we've never given her a proper shout out. So Emily, today's your day. Yes. She's a professor of math at Central Ohio Technical College, and she tweeted us today uh, a screenshot of a Venn diagram worksheet that she's going to have all of her students do, identifying yes. why they're taking her math class, what brought them to the college, and what else they're passionate about. She hopes that they can all recognize that they're human Venn diagram. So we love she's taking her framework. 
this framework and bringing it to our students. And we love that, according to her Twitter bio, she is also a future math education PhD student. So even more of the world might get to learn from Emily soon. Keep doing what you are doing. We love it and we love the shout out. So yes, props to Emily. Absolutely. Just giving you all the snaps, Emily. And also, I want to say a special thank you. Uh, I published an article on Forbes, if we recall, about some listener feedback that Christine and I got early on uh, about our enthusiasm for everyone that we talk with and the subject <laughs> at hand. And uh, Emily tweeted then, keep saying, wow, learning and being excited by new ideas is inspiring and what the world needs. I totally agree with you, Emily. So we thank do. you. Thank you for the Twitter love, you guys. We are at Admiral Hopper, as you've heard us say many times before, and we love when you shout us out and talk to us on Twitter and on Instagram, too. So absolutely keep it up. Okay, so we have a listener question from Melissa, and uh, it's always so much fun when we hear what you guys are struggling with and what your challenges are. So you can always send us a question uh, when you go to our website, humanvendiagram.com. There's a contact form. Fill it out. Click. It goes right to us. Uh, mm-hmm. We love hearing from you. So Melissa says that she's a user experience designer. She says she's about six years into her career, and she writes, for the first few years, I loved capital L-O-V-E-D, my work. I could talk about UX and related tangents for hours without noticing. While I still enjoy chatting about my passion, I've been struggling with the day-to-day of my work. Since I started my career working at an agency, I've worked at two product companies, and I just don't get the same enjoyment out of my job. I want to revitalize my work, but I don't know how. My ask is, how do I rekindle the love for my work I once had? What's your advice for merging passion and productivity such a such a great question it is i love this question melissa and i love that you're paying attention to how your kind of connection to the work and your passion for it has shifted over time and instead of just writing it off as like maybe i don't love this anymore or i should try something else entirely you're trying to like figure out what are those levers that i can pull to reignite this love instead of like you know taking a hard right and pivoting into something else so I love the self-awareness um, and I love that you're reaching out for advice. So here's my two cents. And Kate, you can tell me if you agree. It sounds to me like your connection to the work is very uh, related to the context and the team that you are working on. So mm-hmm. working in an agency, you get to work on a lot of different projects. Um, they have you know a specific scope and length of time. And then you get to try a different client, a different um, industry, a different type of work. You mentioned mentioned in the longer email about some of the different interests you have um, and how some of your previous agency work let you address some of those interests directly in the work that you did for them. Whereas working at a product company, you only have one client and that's the product that you're working on, right? And and I think it can be for some people who are you know revitalized and energized by that project work that changes and really there's always that new element of getting to shift into something else, you lose that when you go in-house at one company. And so maybe, maybe your solution is to go back to an agency or to start your own. If freelancing is an option, um, depending on the strength of your relationships, whatever your risk tolerance is, um, you know, if you feel like you're ready to go out on your own, that could be totally an option. 
But it sounds like going back to an agency where you get that opportunity to switch it up every once in a while could be the missing piece for you. Totally. Yeah. I love that, Christina. I love that you're talking about the the form of the work mm-hmm. and how that can really change, right? And, mm-hmm. and how like it can be a total process of trial and error to figure out what that form looks like. Absolutely. To, to me, it sounds like on some level, you're experiencing a bit of a burnout or a bit of a, the flame is not burning as bright as it was. And this is totally normal to happen, particularly when you've been doing something for a stretch of time. I know for Mm -hmm. me, you know, for lack of a better word, burnout does not have to mean like you can't get out of bed, you're so fried or whatever. It can just mean that like that little ticking passion has traveled away somehow. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, that's that's gone away at a number of different times in my career. And thinking about my first passion, um, which is acting and performing, that's what I have my MFA in. You know, I can think of a, a time when I just was like, why am I doing this? And I wasn't sure why I just kind of felt um, blah about it. And then I can think of another time that's very specific, that I was just a part of a specific project that totally wiped me out in a really detrimental way. And mm. in in both of those cases, particularly the one where I just had a job that just took it out of me, it was really important to me to just talk to my curiosity and talk to my passion a little bit and be like, all right, I see that you're not there right now. And I'm going to figure out how how to find you. And, and kind of what I did and what I really recommend doing is just start kind of dating your curiosity. I know this sounds weird, but it's like, you know, I would just sort of allow myself to to write in the morning. I've talked about it on the show before, but I, I am a really big fan of The Artist's Way, Julia Cameron's love book. Love it. Absolutely you know, love she it. talks about the artist date setting aside two hours a week to just go do something. And it might seem really weird. It's like, why do I want to go tap dance? But I, I do. So let's just do that. <laughs> and it can seem really unrelated. And it's really hard to give yourself that. But I think when you're feeling like the passion is gone, that is the most important time to just create a little bit of space in your week to just like follow your whims and they will lead you back to the original kind of flame that was lit for you or if not to a new one. I know for me when I really had to take a break from performing, that's what led me to producing my own work to Mm -hmm. uh, create work and and create a new relationship with myself as a performer and, and as an artist that I hadn't allowed myself to do before. And I was surprised by that. So that would be my advice is just sort of create some space in your week to just let yourself wander a little bit, you know, and follow your curiosity and see where that leads you. I know that's a little bit of an ethereal advice, but I think it's, I think it's important. I think it's important. And while you're at it, start looking at other agencies and maybe yeah. building a business model for starting your own. <laughs> yes, 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 of course. Um, Nadia, do you have thoughts about this? Being a, a producer, a scientist, having a number of different interests, have there been times in your trajectory when you've kind of felt like, hmm, I got to find that excitement again. I've got to find that passion. Yeah, definitely. And actually, Kate, I was sort of nodding my head over here in Brooklyn while you were talking about, um, (laughs) you know, just sort of following your whims, because I think, you know, it's really easy to get to burn out and to become sort of disillusioned with something that you formerly were passionate about when you start coupling it really heavily with expectations for your career, Mm -hmm. um, you know, with labor as a sort of thing that, you know, wears down on you when you do it every day, year after year. And so I think sometimes disconnecting 
the thing that you love from work um, and doing it in a different context and with different people um, is, I think, really inspiring and can sort of relight that flame that initially was there um, that inspired you to, you know, to get into the field initially. So that's my suggestion is sort of in in line with that, like take a break um, and maybe do the thing that you love, but in a totally different context, like push yourself to do it, you know, with people maybe who don't know anything about uh, UX uh, or UI design or anything and sort of teach them uh, do a project mm. where you, your skills are totally new and um, you know you're you're required to think in new ways and I think you know pushing yourself to do that can really light that fire again oh. at least for me it has in the past Nadia I Absolutely. love that point love that. about when you're when you're matching your passion with these expectations from a career trajectory I think that's so true and Melissa I did a little snooping I went to your website I saw that you majored in art history, you know, it could just be as simple as like spending some time in a museum, like allowing yourself to, to use those great design skills that you're using in UX, just like draw some, you know what I mean? Just kind of get back to that sort of fundamental, like innate curiosity that got you into UX in the first place. I think, and even if you ask yourself, like, and put on paper, what are the things that I really love? And what does my day in and day out look like? And then we've talked about this before, compare those lists, see what's missing, you know, and see how, how you can start sort of threading in some of those initial loves back into your daily work. Absolutely. I think that's fantastic advice. I, I hope that she takes it. <laughs> well, thank you. Maybe thank you. we'll just uh, excerpt that that little clip. I think that's fantastic advice. We'll just play that at the end of every episode. <laughs> yes. Melissa, please write to us. Let us know how it's going. Let us know if you try stuff out. As always, guys, send us your questions. We love hearing them and, and helping you out as we can. Absolutely. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. 
With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. You're listening to The Limit Does Not Exist with Christina Wallace and Kate Scott Campbell. Nadia, let's talk about you. Um, You have this great line in your bio that says you like to bring art into quantitative spaces, which immediately said she has to be on the show. (laughs) Um, Unsurprisingly, you studied neuroscience and visual art at MIT. So we'll start from the beginning. Have science (laughs) and art always played these leading roles in your life? And did you ever experience pushback from other people when they learned about these dual interests? Uh, Yes and yes. I think um, (laughs) from the start, I always... You know, in school as a child, um, I always had an interest in sort of engineering and science, um, but I also loved art. And, you know, I come from a family where my father was a painter, um, my mother also was a painter, everybody was, they loved music and literature. And so I sort of came from that kind of space. But I also had a grandfather who was an engineer who would sort of take me into the garage and and teach me, uh, you know, about circuits. So (laughs) I had... I had this kind of rich um, upbringing, very privileged to kind of experience all of those different things. And so it makes sense that I ended up this kind of person who has a foot in in all of those spaces. But there is always, I think, pushback from people who see that kind of person who sits in the middle of a Venn diagram as somebody who, you know, hasn't decided 
to go down a certain route and that that's not a good thing. And so in the beginning, I had wanted to go to art school, actually, and my parents pushed me to go to MIT instead. And I was very lucky to be uh, at a place like MIT where actually there are spaces to, to do art and to explore uh, things that are not so quantitative. And so I was able to kind of keep both of those interests alive, keep that fire alive in some way um, while I was um, in a very sort of intensive academic space um, Mm -hmm. uh, for the sciences. But I always had to, you know, I always had to sort of justify my uh, interest in in production and filmmaking and documentary while I was working in the lab. And people found it very curious uh, as to why I wouldn't just throw myself into one space entirely and not Mm -hmm. commit myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you're mentioning being in the lab and you started your career as a research scientist, right? Including work at Cambridge University, University College London and Harvard. So was there a moment, Nadia, where you said, I've got to pivot away from research? Um, you know, I have this interest in producing or, or did it happen gradually? We're always so fascinated to hear about those transitions. How did you pivot away from research science? Partially it was practical and pragmatic and partially it was, I don't have a short attention span, but I think I really love big picture thinking and a lot of science in in the lab is uh, being very careful and looking at a really, really low resolution at the sort of smallest problem that you can tackle mm-hmm. um, in a contained way. And when you do that year after year, which is, you know, I did research as I was an undergrad in visual neuroscience labs and then after um, as well for a couple of years. And I just, I felt that I was missing the big picture. And without that big picture, I felt that the work that I was doing wasn't as meaningful for me. And I understood Mm -hmm. why it was meaningful for a lot of, and I still understand why it's meaningful for a lot of scientists. Um, But for me, I didn't, I felt my fire was sort of fading as I stayed in the lab more and more. And and the practical sort of element of, of staying in research science that is kind of negative is that there aren't a lot of opportunities outside of like a very standard you know, uh, track towards Mm -hmm. uh, professorship. And I Mm -hmm. didn't really see myself going down that path. Um, And so that's kind of why I stepped out of it, actually. Mm. So you spent um, about four years on a project with Harvard X called The Fundamentals of Neuroscience. Tell us more about that project. Yeah, so actually, that was, you know, the moment, I think, when everything started to come together. And Mm. I think um, now looking back on that, it wasn't that long ago, but it seems like a long time ago. Um, (laughs) It was... It was a moment where I realized that I needed a lot of time to try production and documentary and and see how that felt and try uh, to make science media, try to be a scientist, fail a bunch of times along the way in in different ways, sometimes like more spectacularly than others. Um, (laughs) And then, then, you know, struggle a little bit and try to figure out what I wanted to do, which is what had happened in all of the years before coming to Harvard X. Um, And then finally get to a point where everything clicked. And that's Mm. kind of what happened um, when I worked on this project, which was an open MOOC for the public um, about neuroscience. And so we we turned it into almost like an episodic you know educational television show um, with uh, artists coming on board and interpreting and uh, translating a lot of the science for us um, in series uh, we had documentaries that we produced as part of the course we had a huge DIY science component and eventually the course was actually integrated into Harvard's um, undergraduate coursework and so they started to use what had initially been produced for the the public all around the globe um, and they used that to teach Harvard undergrads. 
So that was really, it felt like a very comprehensive and wonderful way of bringing together artistry and um and sort of qualitative experience of the world uh, through documentary film and then also like science and educational, you know, science communication. And so I sort of threw those things together when I did that project and I loved it. Wow. So from like the perspective of, you know, CVs and the scientific community, does that count as like a publishing credit or is that just such a weird format for, you know, delivering knowledge that no one really knows what what box to put that in? Because that seems like a really incredible accomplishment and yet in a totally different format from how most scientific publishing or communication takes place. Yeah, I think I mean, I think at that point I had been out of the sort of academic uh, context of, you know, peer-reviewed publishing for a while. And so I didn't necessarily see it as sort of fitting into that mold. But what was interesting was that I ended up working with a lot of graduate students um, and they would, you know, help write scripts for um, different episodes of the show, for lack of a better word, (laughs) which is kind of what it was, and help write a lot of the material. And for them, it was actually a really wonderful way to start to think about how they could build their CV outside of peer reviewed Mm. journal articles, Mm -hmm. which is kind of like all you have uh, as a graduate student. Um, And then all of a sudden the the world was a little bit richer for this project that they could get involved with and sort of touch people with, which um, was really nice to see and to feel that I could sort of give to graduate students in the sciences. Like, here's another thing that you can do that's really important and that the public Mm -hmm. really appreciates. um, And also is you know, good for you and for your CV and for your career, you know, inside of academia or outside. Okay. I was like frantically Googling open MOOC over here, uh, (laughs) not knowing what that was. Massive open online course, right? Is that correct? Yeah. I educated myself. It's kind of, sorry, I shouldn't have used that jargon (laughs) without explaining it. Um, No, I love it. it. There was like, there was a moment in time, I think maybe like three years ago where, actually no, now it's longer. Harvard and MIT came together and started a open courseware platform called um, edX and that's when Udacity started um, and there's a bunch of other sort of platforms for universities to put free open courses Mm. um, online for the public and you know TED Ed is kind of a part of that movement Um, and so now we kind of like take them for granted because they just exist and there's a lot of open online courses but in the beginning it was sort of this MOOC revolution that a lot of academic institutions sort of jumped on as a way to really just engage with the public more. Um, it seems like in creating this, this online course and this, you know, show as you're, as you're describing it, like that took a lot of producing muscles, wrangling muscles, <laughs> you know, uh, digital media muscles. Had you built any of those before you found yourself working on this project or were you sort of learning in the trenches as you went? So the other sort of backstory to me becoming a producer is that while I was an undergraduate at MIT, I met another neuroscience uh, undergraduate major uh, who was also from New Jersey, like me, but she had grown up in a religious uh, Jewish uh, household, and she watched a lot of her friends um, undergo this kind of spiritual transformation um, while she instead decided to go to MIT. And she was really intrigued by this. We talked a lot about it, and we decided, you know, at the age of 19, that we would just make a documentary like no big deal we'll just <laughs> we'll just do that no problem we don't know anything about uh, documentary filmmaking and uh, we were taking a video course at MIT with a professor named Joe Gibbons who's really fantastic and supported us throughout the entirety of this very long process but 
we basically just learned how to produce and you know make a movie uh which sounds kind of insane and it was um <laughs> wow that's awesome yeah there's like no better substitute than to just like try to make one <laughs> you know i love yeah. that we actually bought a book which i think i still have which is called how to make a documentary i'll never forget ordering <laughs> that off of amazon um but the whole process ended up taking about uh, it took over 10 years to actually finish that film um that wow. feature length film that we began and we started it you know before you could buy hd uh cameras um this oh was like gosh. pre <laughs> pre the sort of technological revolution and um you know people didn't even have iphones when we started making the film so it was very it was a very interesting process but i learned a lot you know being a dp and do being a sound recordist and uh running mm -hmm. around in different countries and filming that that film and so then when i came to harvard x to make this massive open online course i had had this sort of trial by fire experience and in, in being a producer and figuring out what that meant and i just sort of applied it and learned a lot more um, in this new sort of educational science context. It's incredible. Is Whatever that... happened to the film? Yeah, Did you release it? Ask. Is it out there? Can we watch it? It is. <laughs> yeah, you can watch it. It's called Unorthodox. And um, I think right now it's on Amazon. It's on iTunes also. So you can download it and watch it. That's fascinating. Very That's cool. awesome. Very, very cool. <laughs> so, Nadia, you're a co-founder of Massive. Let's talk about this. It's a science media company that aims to engage the public and scientists in new ways. What problem are you trying to solve with Massive? What led you to co-founding a science media company and what are you trying to accomplish with it? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that I learned while uh, making science media in an academic context, which, you know, usually I think is classified in the sort of science communication world or, you know, educational science media world, is that it's actually a very closed loop Um most of the people who are kind of consuming the stuff that you're making either are already like interested in science, they're already students, um, or, you know, you're, you're not really reaching out beyond like a, a quite a constrained ecosystem, academic ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And I had also worked uh, for a period of time at um, like larger, more popular media companies, digital media companies like uh, Vice. I was a freelancer for in the very early days um, mm -hmm. when they started doing video online. And also I did a brief stint at BuzzFeed and uh, most recently at Mashable. And so mm -hmm. I kind of experienced the other side of you know science media and what happens when you really try to make things hit with the largest possible audience. Yeah. Uh, and that's your like main aim. <laughs> um, yeah. So I kind of saw it from both ends of this weird social media publishing funnel mm -hmm. um, and what that meant in terms of how people actually were engaging with science. And I felt that frequently what was missing was a sort of direct pathway between scientists um, who are so excited about science, so curious, devote their entire lives to, you know, this passion that they have for uncovering these questions. Like, they weren't touching the public. There was no, there was no way for the public to sort of engage with that excitement. And so with Massive, what I'm doing with my two co-founders is trying to really figure out a way to um, connect that passion and that excitement and that expertise, which, mm -hmm. you know, right now is very closed off from the public. Like it's a, it's a whole other world that we can't really access um, to open that up and open up new pathways so that if people want to learn more, they can go straight to the source and, and really understand what's happening in, a, in an in-depth way. 
I love I, it. I mean, I, I just think this is fantastic. You yeah. know, we've had, um, I think, three other science communicators on our show already. We had Emily Grassley, who first had a background in landscape painting mm-hmm. um, before she started her YouTube show. We had Shini Samara, who was a mechanical engineer, and then she started working with the BBC, also had a YouTube show. Um, and Kate Fellhaber, who finished her PhD in neuroscience and immediately knew she did not want a career in academia. <laughs> so is science communication just a growing field or is it just our awareness of it? Like, are we just suddenly seeing a thing that's always existed and, you know, we're, we're stumbling into it a little bit more, but is it growing? And is it because of you know, the internet and the cost of starting a blog or, or having a show on YouTube is so much lower than trying to get published somewhere official or, you know, getting a show f- for real? Like, or is this really coming down to the demise of tenure track jobs and scientists looking for other routes? Yeah, I don't know. I think it's, I mean, I think it's a combination of a lot of different things. I, I thought about this recently because I remember thinking that I was like really genius, um, you know, I don't know, eight years ago or something when I was like, <laughs> I'm a science media producer, you know, like I felt like I had kind of made up that term because <laughs> um, there weren't a lot of, I mean, there just weren't so many people doing that because there wasn't a, like video on the internet was, there was YouTube um, and there were, there are and have been for a long time, like many amazing YouTubers who, who um, have sort of science channels and um, focus on science in lots of different ways. But science as a sort of vertical for a lot of digital media companies, I think, has really exploded in the last three or four years um, because there's huge public interest in like innovations in technology and engineering and science. And so I think with that comes an understanding of how hard it is to actually make good you know, educational, entertaining, but also accurate science media. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. I think there's almost like a void that's very quickly being filled right now. And people are figuring out and understanding that there's a need for expertise, like for scientists to step into this space, because things are complicated. Like, it's hard to explain. (laughs) It's It's really hard to explain stuff if you don't have a background in it. Um, and that's why, you know, people like Physics Girl and um, V Heart are so awesome because they're coming from a place of expertise, but they're also good teachers and they're entertaining. And, you know, that's why they're there. And that's why a lot of people are kind of rushing to do similar things because you can build huge audiences of really engaged, interested people um, if you if you give them that. Um, and so I think it's a combination of that. Plus, you know, there are a lot of scientists who don't really have a good chance at getting a tenure track um, job. And I think the reality of that is it's not necessarily like a depressing thing because there are a lot of options, you know, for, for what you can do as a scientist. But I think increasingly people are seeing value in science communication as a, as a field, um, as, as a scientist. So I think that they're, they're going there. Yeah, everything that you're saying is resonating so much, Nadia. I know in my own experience, a number of years ago, I had this math blog called 11 Bettys, and we made some video content, did a lot of articles. And at that time, it really was like, you know, it was like you were speaking Greek when you were saying, yeah, I'm going to mix math and pop culture. This is what I'm doing. And people were like, what? And now it feels like that is becoming, you know, such a part of the media landscape. And like you're saying, I think, you know, it is 
is really challenging to explain things without expertise. And on the flip side, we've talked about this too, you know, it's also a learning curve for scientists to figure out how to communicate what they're doing, right? And like how to make that really engaging media. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. 
You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. You're listening to The Limit Does Not Exist with Christina Wallace and Kate Scott Campbell. So I'm curious about where you see Massive sort of fitting in the landscape. Do you see Massive producing documentary films over a number of years or, or, or shorter pieces of content, uh, living on YouTube or elsewhere? You know, what, what's some stuff that you're excited about now and where do you see it existing? What we're trying to focus on right now is this sort of like smallest nugget of information that we can then use as a seed to grow out additional sort of more complex and and sort of bigger stuff. So, for mm-hmm. example, we're working with a lot of doctoral students right now to translate existing research um, into articles that are narrativized and exciting and uh, explanatory and entertaining, but that don't get rid of the sort of fundamental, interesting details of the methods of a paper and how those methods are contextualized, like historically, for example, in a certain field. Mm. Um, And so because those scientists have that expertise, they can write you know, these articles really quickly, and we work with them and we train them to to write for a wider audience. And for a lot of scientists, like, that's the thing they never get. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what they're really excited um, about in terms of working with us. And we found that it's just like a really wonderful symbiotic, you know, partnership between folks like us, um, myself and uh, Gabe and Alan, my co-founders who have experience in talking to these much wider audiences, and then scientists who are used to writing for like, you know, really specific localized audiences. And so what we want to then do is figure out, can we build audiences around certain types of uh, expertise around specific scientists? Um, And when we build those audiences, can we give them more and more? So can we uh, create a documentary series around, you know, a specific article or uh, a specific innovation in a field around machine learning, for example, like how can we both teach, but build an audience, um, you know, around certain topics. And so I see us sort of becoming a very growing, like scaled um, uh, uh, platform, but also a space for people to, to learn and follow, you know, directly from scientists about science. Hmm. How have you been recruiting your scientists so far as you're thinking about building out the content creators? You know, are, are you... Are you creating like the YouTube talent roster of the science community Um, or have people been coming to you based on reading content on your site and saying, I would love to publish for them? I think it's at the at the moment since Massive is really young, we're kind of like a, we're babies. We're just just learning how to, uh, you know, grasp like our own hand or something or (laughs) we're very young so we're really trying to grow like we're growing in a combination uh in a combined like organic and more constructed way so we're reaching out to existing organizations that do a lot of science communication or that train scientists to to communicate to the public working with them um but we're also you know i'm i'm bowled over by the number of people that are contacting us um and are excited about doing something that's going to have a much bigger impact. Cause I think something that 
you know, scientists are worried about um, and also, you know, don't really know where to take the first step is like, how can they explain to the public how important the research they're doing is, you know, how can Mm -hmm. they, how can they get across that science generally um, or their particular field of research like needs to be prioritized. And so Mm -hmm. they see us as a way to both teach the public, but also to show them that it's important that this research gets done and that this research is transparent and that this research is accessible. So it's a, it's a combination of both at the moment, which is really great. That makes me feel like what we're doing is of value. What fueled your decision to start your own science media company as opposed to like, you know, creating and really impacting a vertical within a Mashable or a Vice or a BuzzFeed or something like that. I'm so curious about the decision to start your own company. And then in addition, you know, what kinds of new skills and jobs has that called from you, you know, to do, you know, in contrast to what you were doing being a a senior producer at larger companies? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> Sometimes I ask myself that uh, every day. Um, I think science, doing science media well is really hard. And at a lot of digital media companies, science is a sort of, uh, is, I don't want to say an afterthought, but it's a secondary to, you know, culture reporting, to um, what people call tech, which uh, mm-hmm. I, I would categorize as a sort of separate thing than um science news or, or science reporting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not really given the space to grow. Um, and, and people aren't necessarily experimenting, um, in a, on, in a scaled way with what they can do with science media. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a couple of places that are doing it really well, but are also doing it from a nonprofit perspective, which I think perpetuates a lot of the problems that currently exist in the scientific world in terms of how scientists' time is valued, mm-hmm. um, i.e. it's not valued that much at all. Uh, <laughs> and, and so, you know, the expectation that scientists will just like do a bunch of stuff for free doesn't like reinforce that that's actually like a valid career path to be both a scientist and a science communicator. Just to interject, that has always bothered me that like, as soon as we're talking about science, sometimes it feels like there's this assumption that it should just be nonprofit if you're talking Mm -hmm. about science media. And so it's just great to hear you say that, that like, no, this is, this is valuable content. It doesn't have to be a nonprofit just because it's science and educational. (laughs) Well, I I think that's, that's relevant too. Um, You know, I think there are other adjacencies like anytime anyone's talking about coding education or like anything related to STEM and kids or diversifying the pipeline or whatever, the assumption is you should be willing to talk about this and promote it and educate people around this for free because you believe in the mission of, you know, whatever it is you're saying and therefore your time, your expertise, um, the work that you're putting into either writing something or speaking about it or whatever, that, you know, you should just be willing to do it for the cause. Mm-hmm. Um, and you end up with this entire, you know, just like I think a lot of artists are expected to do their art for free because, you know, you get the benefit of making art out of it. Yep. Um, that, that I think people undervalue just because there is some inherent good in the work you're doing doesn't mean that 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 good is compensation enough for the effort you're doing to do that work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a problem, you know, that, I mean, and this is a hotly debated too, like in the scientific world, the fact that the peer review system is both biased, but and opaque, and, you know, you are not being paid for something that takes a really long time to do, 
and is also an inherent part of being a scientist. Like how, how, how does that work? Is that sustainable? I don't know. I mean, but I do think that there needs to be other options for, you know, how to move forward. What has it been like to go from producer to co-founder? Yeah, that's, it's been a really steep learning curve. Um, I think, uh, you know, Christina, you actually saw one of our first pitches for Massive um, mm-hmm. uh, at some point. And even just getting up in front of investors, um, learning how to sort of pitch a, a product, learning what a product is at a media company, um, mm-hmm. learning how to, you know, do really stuff that I realize now is, well, it's not basic, but it should have been something that I maybe knew a lot more about before and I didn't. And now I've just had to learn really quickly, <laughs> you know, but like financial elements of like how to set up a business, um, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of stuff. It's been really amazing, but also hard sometimes because you know you have to frequently you kind of have to just pretend that you know stuff and then you you learn about it very quickly right after you uh you say that you know how to do something and uh, i'm not used to doing that (laughs) well and it's it's always the stuff that's like that seems like wait this seems basic like i should know how to do this it's like wait no one ever told me to do this like how would i know how to do that and i didn't anticipate that being part of it you know (laughs) the good news the secret um truly of all of startups is everyone feels that way. Um, You know, certainly if this is your second or third or fourth startup, there are some things that you've done before and you're like, oh yeah, I kind of know how to do that now. But, you know, especially if anytime you're trying something new, a new industry, a new business model, um, it, it always is like, oh, I don't actually know what I'm doing, but I'm going to figure it out before the next person asks that question the second time, right? <laughs> so as long as you keep learning along the way, like I'm, I believe in fake it till you make it as long as the second you have to fake something, you go and like do a, a Google search or you find an advisor or you actually learn the thing. So the next time you're in that situation, you're not faking it. Um, exactly. People who fake it consistently and never bother learning are the ones that, that really kind of drive my gourd. Is that a phrase? I'm going to make that a phrase for today. <laughs> it's a good one. I, don't... <laughs> I, I can, can imagine please. you driving like a squash down the street. <laughs> Totally. Like, do not drive that gourd for me. I will drive that gourd by myself, which I think might have changed the metaphor. But anyway, they have have. all of which to say, if that was one of your first pitches that I saw at our Shark Tank event, I thought it was fantastic. And obviously, you've got a learning curve to work on as you're, you're figuring out how exactly to sell this. But you guys are starting from a very strong place. And everyone who's doing it for the first time feels just as lost as you do. So you're right on track. That's well, and, and from my very non-authoritative point of view, I'm totally on board. So I just want you to know that. <laughs> great. That's great to hear. Actually, one of the one of the funniest things and sort of most the things that I've learned in the past couple of months is that starting a business and particular starting a startup is like it's exactly like dating. And that's something that mm. at first when I heard that I laughed at, but but is really true uh, in the sense that when you're starting a business, things really have to feel good in order to go ahead. Um, if you don't feel good about something, you just really shouldn't pursue that partner, that investor, um, you know, that product, whatever it is, the person you want to hire, unless you're both on board. And, you know, I think that's just like a really lovely metaphor for both dating and starting a business. And now I really like sort of deeply understand it after having gone through that process. And I don't know if you guys have ever, if you've oh, ever 100%. heard that or talked. Yeah. I mean, I felt it 
through and through. And I, I try to figure out like, what is the intellectual, you know, rationalization for that? Um, and the best that I can come up with my, my theory on this is, and, you know, I see this as we work, um, with a lot of early stage investors. So they're, you know, experienced in looking at super, super, super early stage companies that don't have a lot yet of real evidence or fact to back them up. You know, you're, you're sort of taking one tiny signal and trying to project, uh, some sort of, you know, future based off of it. And I think it, it truly comes down to Blink and that entire theory that says your conscious mind is taking in whatever, some, you know, number of um, data points and, and can perceive and process this small amount of information. And your subconscious, your unconscious mind is taking in like 10x that amount of data points mm-hmm. and you're you know you're trying to process all these things um, these inputs and trying to make a decision or make a you know some sort of reaction to this and I think very early on when you don't have a ton of conscious data points you you can't really figure out these trajectories and you're making these decisions based on gut instinct it feels really wishy-washy or like um, not based on anything tangible but I actually think it is I think it's just based on all of the subconscious data points that we can't put words to and so trusting in your gut in that moment is not like I'm just gonna believe my emotions and you know throw logic to the wind it's literally like I'm gonna trust whatever my subconscious logic brain is telling me even if I can't really explain why just yet. That's my philosophy. I, on it. I love that. I've always wanted to read Blink. I still haven't. But I, I think what's also great about that is you're putting yourself in a situation to constantly be listening to that, right? And like to be testing mm-hmm. how able am I to really listen to myself and what that's telling me. You know, and Absolutely. and like how in tune am I with the clues that my subconscious brain is giving me amidst everything else? So, you know, like what a way to sharpen that. So, Nadia, I have one last question on Massive. And then I think it, we we might have to like move on. Yeah, but what's your around. big vision for it? Like what's five to ten years out? Where do you want Massive to be? What role does it play in the public awareness and understanding of science? Yeah, I think that what I want Massive to be is I want it to be the place where people go to hear and to experience the excitement of science from scientists uh, straight from the horse's mouth, for lack of a... To go back to a weird gourd analogy, <laughs> old, old, ye old analogy, I think, uh, I think, you know, I want it to be the place where that happens. And right now that doesn't happen anywhere. Um, that's all contained within, within academia, within scientific communities, it's closed off. And I want massive to be the place where you can find those documentaries about the newest scientific research that's just been published in science or in nature, uh, or in the proceedings of the national Academy of sciences that you don't understand. And you go there and you can find opinions and reviews that are open and accessible and written for you by other scientists who work in that field, by the scientists who wrote the paper themselves. Um, And I want that to be a kind of acceptable and expected uh, thing for scientists to do. And I want them to also find value in that and and be excited by that. And and I want Massive to be that place where people go to find the most trustworthy of science media and science entertainment and science narrative. 
so I think in our small way, we're, we're, we're building to that in, you know, five years. That's amazing. Can I put in a, a, a product request? You can like slate this for, you know, year seven or something. <laughs> um, I think you should develop a like roster, a, you know, it's like a speaker's um, bureau for science advisors to pop culture, like television and film um, and other things so that when we tell the stories of science in entertainment, we're telling them accurately and that we have real scientists who are advising on that as well. So I think you could do that. And I would like to put that in that feature request, please. I've just noted it in a spreadsheet. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> That, the spreadsheet. that is so awesome. Well, I'm going to squeeze in one last question before we get to our lightning round. And that is a question that we like to ask all of our guests. Since our podcast is called The Limit Does Not Exist, what's one time where you felt limited in your education or career? And that could be in any way, shape or form. And how did you overcome it? I think probably doing production work in the field, you know, as like a run and gun documentary filmmaker Mm -hmm. is really easy because you can make a lot of mistakes and it's kind of expected that things will be a little bit rough around the edges. But Mm -hmm. as soon as you get into a production environment where you're working in a studio and you're working with people who've gone to uh, film school and or, you know, have been working as in really technical fields in production for a long time, Mm -hmm. you really have to ramp up your skills really fast. Um, and that experience to me was, I think, a little bit less daunting than it could have been because I had been in that position as a scientist many times mm. where I was kind of in a lab and just expected to know how to do stuff. And I had to learn very quickly how to do cannulation in a rat brain and figure out how to, you know, do that surgery with, you know, very little guidance or experience. And I just had to learn how to do it really quickly. And you can't mess up when you're doing that stuff. So it was a scaled kind of learning curve being um, in a production environment and having to learn how to do things really well. Um, And then, you know, having to do that in the science environment as well. So I think that that was like a nice realization that that kind of like learning curve scales to lots of different fields. Um, Oh, that's so yeah. cool. That might be one of my favorite skill transfers yet, which is the the science in a research lab transferring directly into being on set in the studio. I love that so much. That's specifically, so cool. specifically rats yes, in exactly. a research lab translating to a film that's studio. That's awesome. I think Nadia. we should make sure that that detail is not lost. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. The specifics are where the good stuff is. Awesome. Well, it is time, Christina, isn't it, for the lightning round? It is. You have not seen these questions ahead of time. That is the point. There's just five. They're a little silly. The whole point of this is you just give us your immediate reaction. You don't have to explain or defend, um, and we will do our best not to ask follow-up questions. This sounds perfect. I can't wait. Excellent. (laughs) Kate, take it away. Awesome. Question number one, what are you reading right now? Oh, I'm reading. I just had to like remember the name of the author, uh, and I can't pronounce it either. But I'm reading the Three Body Problem, which is a trilogy. Oh yes, trilogy. Um, Chaz so is reading that. My boyfriend. I saw the cover. It's fantastic. Oh my god, it's so good. Yeah, um, awesome. Okay, very cool. Question two: What was the last thing that made you go, "Wow"? <laughs> so well, uh, so well asked, Christina. 
Thank you. I tried. I tried to live the question. <laughs> yeah, for you. you really did. Oh, it happens so often. I'm easily, I'm easily in awe. Oh, um, that's great. A time. I went to the Copenhagen uh, Documentary Film Festival. It's called CPH Docs. It's really amazing. If you ever get a chance, you should go there. They do a lot of hybrid work, um, like sort of hybrid documentaries, film fiction. Um, they were doing a lot of science stuff. And I was helping to mentor as part of their lab where they bring filmmakers and technologists together. And they made a amazing VR experience, which was a shamanistic spiritual journey but in a VR headset. And I was, I was very um, resistant to the idea of that kind of experience being turned into sort of like a, a technological experience, but it was mind blowing. Um, And the team that that was building it was just unbelievably talented. And so I, yeah, that was very awe inspiring. I went on a, I went on a shamanistic journey and I found my spirit animal. (laughs) I mean, does it get more wow than that? That is amazing. Awesome. Okay, question three. You're doing so great, Nadia. Other than science, media, visual art, and filmmaking, what else is in your Venn diagram? And this might be something that's not super obvious to people who only know you professionally. Like Stefan Alexander told us that knitting was in his, and that was so delightful. We had no idea. Mm -hmm. Um. I love uh, dancing, and I'm not a great dancer at all, but I find, <laughs> like, I mean, I've never been, like, trained in any any kind of dance, um, but I just love going and dancing, and for me, it's a kind of form of meditation and a form of sort of physical release that's also really fun, um, and yeah, and I think everybody, we don't do it enough. And we only do it in sort of circumstances that I think aren't necessarily conducive to it being like a really healthy experience. So I mm-hmm. I try to go and I try to dance as, as much as I can, you know, at weird times of day or like, you know, <laughs> I'm, I was a huge fan of the morning rave, morning mm. rave thing for a while because I think it's a great Ooh. thing to wake up in the morning and just like dance a whole bunch. So oh, absolutely. I gets your love that. Okay. Question four. What's one science myth that you want to kill once and for all? <laughs> well, it's kind of a myth, but the idea that the brain is just like an input-output device, mm. like a machine, uh, I think is like in some – it's an oversimplification and I think has kind of hurt the public's understanding of what the brain does um, and I think – or what it's capable of doing also. Um, and I think, you know, makes things like – visualizations of what's happening in the brain Uh, like with fmri for example like it it makes it difficult for people to interpret what it means for like a part of the brain to be activated um Mm -hmm. and does it mean when you see a picture of that because humans are really visual and so when we see that kind of stuff we're like oh that's where a thing is happening it's like a machine that's a part that is doing that thing Mm -hmm. that has a functional purpose but um i think that yeah, that's what I would love to dispel. I don't have an answer for what actually is happening. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's it's very complicated, but I think that particular analogy is mm-hmm. is one that we should work to dispel. Love that's it. very cool. I'm looking forward to some massive a massive take on that in in the future. <laughs> um, awesome. Okay, last question. Give a shout out to a woman who's doing awesome things in science communication who might be a little under the radar and could use a little extra love. Ooh, that's a good one. Um, so somebody that I have worked with before um, who is 
she's absolutely amazing. She's a radio producer. She's very similar to me in the sense that she came from a sort of biology science background, but is now a producer of interactive projects. And she's doing a PhD in science communication and um, science media. And I've I've worked on a big interactive synthetic biology project with her. And she's just absolutely amazing. And her name is Britt Ray, W-R-A-Y. Um, yeah, and she's she's great. And I think I can't – She, I know she's going to be doing really amazing things in the future. She's, she's written a book that's coming out soon on de-extinction. She's amazing. So she's – I'm going to give her a little shout-out because she's, she's a fantastic person and a fantastic science communicator. Awesome. Such a great shout out to Britt. Thank you, Britt, for all that you're doing. Um, and thank you, Nadia, for, for coming on the show today. It was so fantastic to have you on. Yes. And it's so... Thank you so much. It was it's oh. really, it's great to talk to you guys. You're, like What you're doing with The Limit Does Not Exist is, I think, awesome. And um, I'm really excited to have you know been here with you guys chatting. Oh, my Aww, gosh. Well, you. we just can't wait to continue to follow along with Massive and see how you guys evolve. It's so exciting. Thank you for your huge contributions. So I have one quick question for you guys. Can I ask it? Yes. So uh, it, did the name for your podcast, The Limit Does Not Exist, did it in any way relate to that scene in Mean Girls? Oh, Perhaps you know it. I can't actually say what I was going to say there. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> totally. In fact, if you go on our Instagram, this is for everybody at Admiral Hopper, there is a video of us explaining that scene. But yes, we we had this Google Doc of like all of these all of these names. And at one point I I just slipped the limit does not exist in the list and like didn't tell Christina. And then Christina, I don't know if you called me or emailed me and you were like, Kate, the limit does not exist. The limit does not exist. <laughs> That's it. And yeah, we love you know, we yes. love that it has uh, this pop culture reference, but obviously that it means that there are no limits and that it's a calculus term. And it was just totally the center of our show Venn diagram for us. It really was. It was all, <laughs> all of the best inferences in one catchy phrase. So I'm so glad that you caught that. Yes. Well I just done. wanted to hear the, in, the sort of inception story also. I, you know, <laughs> I figured that it had something to do with that, but you know, absolutely. <laughs> Gotta love a good math team joke. Totally. <laughs> hey everyone, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200 k for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's Marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com.
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.